0: Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
1: You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature! And you will atone!
2: Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the
3: Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM
4: 740.
2: Everybody knows that the
4: And in keeping with the season, if you log on to the website richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. After... Ten years on the air, I still have to spell my last name, but that's okay. That's all right. We're in a forgiving mood. Uh, richardserat.com, that is your, of course, portal to The Conspiracy Show. And at some point, we're going to fold this website into theconspiracyshow.com website. And that'll have all the information for both this radio show and the upcoming television show. Uh, But for now, it remains richardserrett.com. If you log on to there right now, as I say, in keeping with the season, and just scroll down a little ways, about halfway down, just underneath all of tonight's show info, you'll see Merry Christmas from the Sarrett family. And I've uh, posted a little uh, YouTube video, complete with musical score courtesy of uh, Alan Jackson, uh, that we're sending out to uh, dear friends and relatives, and you, my radio family. Consider that our Christmas card. Coming up a little later in the show, I have to refer to him. This word gets tossed out a lot, I know. After the word genius, uh, this next word is is probably overused, but I think it's very appropriate in the case of John Rappaport. He'll be uh, with us in hour two of the program. John is one of those figures, legendary figures, in this whole alternative media field and he's worked as a freelance investigative reporter for over 20 years. Initially, he was working for, or toiling for uh, papers like the LA Weekly and Spin Magazine and uh, Stern, Village Voice, CBS Health Watch. Uh, But for the last, hmm, 20 years or so, He's, uh, well, not quite that long. He's sort of distanced himself. Or let's say he's operated largely away from the mainstream media because, as he puts it, his research is not friendly to the conventional media. He is the founder, of course, of nomorefakenews.com. John Rappaport will be here. We're going to talk about the decline of public education and the loss of logic and why now, more than ever, it's important to homeschool our children. John Rappaport in Hour 2. One of the things that this program does, and the guests that I present on this program, is to challenge the conventional wisdom to make you think. Which I guess also leads into Hour 2, talking about the role, the, the, the purpose of education which is to arm you with the necessary information in order to go out in the world and make decisions for yourself so that you can build the ship that you sail in. The purpose of education is not just to get a job, although that's what it has become. It's for you to make decisions. And my next guest, not only is uh, he challenging conventional wisdom in a very large way, getting you to think, and that's always important. He is an independent antiquity scholar and the founder of the Pharaoh's Pump Foundation. We're going to find out all about that in just a moment. Essentially, it's a non-profit organization dedicated to researching and developing energy systems and related technologies that were used by ancient mankind and then develop applications for these energy systems in today's world. He's also the author of the new book, Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid. Stephen Myers, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Great to have you aboard. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me on your show.
4: One would have to, uh, I guess, ask the, the, the initial question is, energy systems, what pray tell would that have to do with the ancient pyramids we assume or have been told from you know the time we were in public school that the the pyramids were burial tombs for the pharaohs but there's been you know some other theories uh, one is that they were essentially granaries and uh, others that they were some sort of a celestial observatory some of these actually have some 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 credibility but what do the pyramids have to do with Energy, Stephen?
1: Well, there are several ideas, uh, certainly pyramid power and other things, but it takes a tremendous amount of energy to move millions of tons of stone. And uh, that's true in modern times and it was true in ancient times. And uh, I wrote my book, Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid, to uh, explore the energy systems used. By the original builders when they built the Great Pyramid and used it as they intended.
4: A lot of your research is uh, is is based on the work of uh, uh, a friend of mine, Nelson Thal, a media scientist. Who likes to say, likes to say, you know, we were standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, well, and and, yes. and, and um, Edward Kunkel is is really a, a pioneer in 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 this work. Tell us a little bit about Ed Kunkel and and how you became aware of his research in this matter?
1: Well, uh, it, it was a, quite a journey to find Ed, Edward Kunkel's book. Uh, I had an interest in the Great Pyramid purely on a technical level. Uh, it's a 45-story skyscraper built in very uh, ancient times. Uh, they moved heavy stones, uh, thousands and thousands, millions of these heavy stones to build this structure. Well, conventional ideas by Egyptologists, none of those ideas about a big ramp or hand-cut stones to extreme precision have ever been demonstrated. And anyway, I was very dissatisfied with traditional uh, stories that Egyptologists have come up with. So ultimately, I found this book by Edward Cunkel called Pharaoh's Pump, and he wrote that originally in 1962— And it went through several editions. But uh, he explored how the Great Pyramid was built purely on technical um, considerations. And his consensus that I concur with is that the Great Pyramid was built using uh, water locks like the Erie Canal or the Panama Canal, and that its purpose was to be infrastructure for the civilization that built it. And that infrastructure was a machine which was a water pump
4: a water pump something as prosaic as a water pump not burial tombs for the great pharaohs not a granary not as i mentioned earlier a celestial observatory or, or was it multifaceted i mean is it possible that it served more than one purpose
2: well uh
1: i believe that for the original builders it served one specific purpose and that is to pump water, just as a hydroelectric dam serves one purpose, to uh, create electricity. The electricity is probably used for a number of purposes, as well as the pumped water was used for a number of purposes. But uh, that's our contention, is that the Great Pyramid was infrastructure and was a water pump.
4: Now, Stephen, are we talking about the Great Pyramid of Giza, or are we talking about all the pyramids of the Upper and and, and Lower Kingdom, or are we talking about all pyramids worldwide?
1: Our research is specific to the Great Pyramid, but uh, all the pyramids in the Nile Valley are built with differing degrees of precision, and they all have different designs. They have different slopes on their sides. They're also made with different materials. Some are made with sun-baked mud bricks. Others are made with limestone. And uh, it's hard to say about the other pyramids, but specifically to the Great Pyramid, it, and I believe it alone, was a water pump.
4: Well, there you are, folks. There's one we probably haven't heard before. The lost technologies of the Great Pyramid, how the Great Pyramid was built, My guest, Stephen Myers, back with more when The Conspiracy Show continues, a water pump. No kidding.
3: Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740.
4: Next week on the, the program, UFO journalist Paula Harris with two very special guests in tow, two eyewitnesses to a UFO crash that she promises will rival the legendary UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. This one is far more uh, uh, contemporary, recent, and two eyewitnesses first-hand accounts of that UFO crash. Individuals who saw bodies, I am told. That's uh, next week. Right now, We're talking Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid. How the Great Pyramid was built. Author Stephen Myers is with us. And Stephen, there's a great quote you have in the book from G.K. Chesterton, which is very uh, appropriate. The function of the imagination is not to make strange things settled so much as to make settled things strange. And for most of us in our minds, the function, the purpose of the pyramids was something that was settled. Uh, I mean, I mean, you're really flying against not only you but uh, Edward Kunkel, flying against conventional wisdom, officialdom, the uh, the uh, established order in uh, Egyptology and antiquities over there in Egypt. I mean, politically, is there any fallout writing this type of book and 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 and, and making these sorts of assertions?
1: Well oh, certainly. There's uh, people that have their own ideas, uh, that's for sure. Uh, traditional Egyptologists talk about a big ramp, and they talk about uh, people with uh, strong back muscles that can pull these heavy stones and that type of thing. But uh, studying Egyptology, I learned something that most people don't know, and that is that the science of Egyptology does not engage in the scientific method. They've never demonstrated many of the pivotal technical requirements to make the Great Pyramid. The precision cut casing stones, uh, the science of Egyptology has never made one. They've never even made a precision cut surface similar to the surfaces on the stones in the Great Pyramid. They've never moved a stone around a corner of a spiral ramp. Or they say that uh, a stone was set in place every two minutes They've never moved two stones in four minutes. So Egyptologists have a story to tell, but that's all that they have. They they don't have any demonstrative evidence to substantiate what they're saying.
4: All right. Well, but let's talk a
1: about of, a lot of ideas uh, fly in the face of conventional thought. There was a guy who decided that uh, mold that people would cut off of bread that could make people. Uh, well, sick people. Well, and that was the guy who developed penicillin. And uh, Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla. He he said that wire. Water, uh, excuse me. Electricity could go both ways in the same wire. That was very unconventional thought uh, when he was developing alternating current. So yes, this is a revolutionary idea. But a lot of people that are familiar with it say that it is very compelling.
4: All right, let's talk about your demonstrable evidence uh, that, the, in fact, the, the Great Pyramid was a water pump, a very sophisticated water pump. What is the evidence?
1: Oh, there's a lot of evidence, tremendous amount of evidence. Herodotus, uh, the 5th century B.C. historian, talked a lot about water at the Great Pyramid. He said that the Great Pyramid was like an island surrounded by water. There used to be a wall. Around the Great Pyramid that existed up until the 19th century. It's gone now, but that wall, we feel, impounded uh, water around the Great Pyramid. There was a silt inside the Great Pyramid. Uh, Petrie, Flanders Petrie, an early researcher who studied the Great Pyramid, uh, discovered this uh, silt inside the Great Pyramid. Uh, uh, the salts that were in the Queen's Chamber and the uh, Grand Gallery deposits were like mineral deposits from water. And uh, the passages and chambers are constructed to be uh, air and water tight. The uh, stones are cemented together. That's not to keep the pharaoh's soul from leaking out. That's to keep the water from leaking out. And the uh, casing stones on the outside are cemented together. They are still watertight today, the few that remain. And again, that's not to keep the pesky rain in Egypt out. What that is was to keep water in during construction. So that and a whole host of other things that's discussed in my book uh, about water on the Giza Plateau, that type of thing, and uh, that indicates that it was a water pump.
4: Does this uh, presence of water then might solve another mystery, and that is the uh, remnants or, or, or uh, evidence of water erosion around the Sphinx, which led some to suspect that the Sphinx was much older than previously thought because if there was some uh, ancient, uh, I don't know, lake in the area perhaps, that might explain the erosion. But, but you, you perhaps have just solved another riddle.
1: Well, certainly, uh, Robert Schacht, uh, who's a geologist, a uh, tremendous man, anyway, he s- uh, studied the erosion on the Sphinx and the Sphinx enclosure, and he said that it was water erosion. Well, the last water that is generally considered to have existed in the Nile Valley, the last, like, rainfall was the uh, last ice age. Right. So that would put the... Con- the carving of the sphinx much much uh, earlier than conventional thought but this is a potential uh, other source of water in fact the sphinx enclosure is lower in elevation than the great pyramid and certainly there's uh, scholarly speculation that the water from the great pyramid could have could have came down and caused that erosion so yes there that uh it uh, is, a, is another thing to consider.
4: Stephen Myers is uh, with us, author of Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid, How the Great Pyramid was Built, and uh, he is the founder of the Pharaoh's Pump Foundation. So how did this thing work? Walk us through how the, the Great Pyramid of Giza actually was able to pump water.
1: Well, the first part of the construction of the Great Pyramid was the passages and chambers cut right into the bedrock, the solid rock, the subterranean chamber, and the descending passage. And we feel that those passages, and uh, there were some valves, some stones on pivots that early uh, writers talk about, acted like a uh, hydraulic ram water pump, similar to a hydraulic ram water pump, but much more sophisticated. And that, that pump... Supplied water for the water locks to bring stones on barges all the way up to the building site.
4: Okay, so they initially, so as or ostensibly, then the the Giza, uh, uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza, then was the first, and they needed that to pump the water in order to construct the others. I suppose, but how did they get the big stones? to the site at Giza uh, before the pump was actually built before the locks were there before the water was there.
1: Okay. They they carved in the bedrock this pump that's that's there. That's the very first thing they did and they used that water, that uh, pump to um, pump water which I which research indicates is supplied by a lake Maurice which is still uh, exists Uh, It was a much larger lake in ancient times. Herodotus talked about ancient Lake Maurice quite a bit. But anyway, that that water was uh, supplied to the Giza Plateau, and then uh, the water pump allowed the construction of the Great Pyramid in this way. The first stones they set in place were the first level of casing stones. So imagine the stones that were on the outside, so imagine those stones set in place, cemented together, and the pump would fill that area up with water. So it would be like a square pond right on the Giza Plateau. And there were water locks from that pond all the way to the building site. And that allowed stones on barges to be brought from the Nile all the way up into that pond. And the stones were moved from the barges and set in place in, the, in that pond. And when that pond was filled with stones, the first level of the Great Pyramid was completed. Then they put the next level of casing stones all the way around, and it allowed that pond to be at the next higher level, if you will. And the water pump supplied water for that pond and also a series of water locks from that pond all the way down to the Nile. And they built the Great Pyramid level by level and uh, all the way
4: up to the apex simply by raising the level in the uh, in the locks ingenious absolutely ingenious and it really solves a lot of riddles how do they get those huge stones in place when we're told we can't even construct a crane powerful enough to lift something that heavy it all makes sense Stephen Myers I I
1: appreciate that
4: all right we'll uh, take Uh, a quick time out listen when we come back I want to find out what happened to the pump what happened to the water Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new
4: AM 740. If you're a regular listener not only to this program, but also to AM 740 Zoomer Radio here at 550 Queen Street East in Toronto, you'll know that my weekly feature, which is a three or four minute little vignette, called strange planet with richard Serrett it airs friday saturday sunday evenings at around uh, seven thirty 30 p.m i believe uh i uh, i have another collection of those that i'm uh, issuing on cd this will be strange planet volume two and it will be available before christmas we're just getting it um, completed and uh, as we speak the artwork is being done and uh, and so forth and uh, that will be sold at uh, Conspiracy Culture, 1696 Queen Street West, our good friend Patrick White and his lovely bride Kadena. Uh, so look for that, Strange Planet Volume 2, before Christmas, just in time for Christmas. Strange Planet Volume 2, a nice little stocking stuffer. All right, uh, coming up later in the program, John Rappaport of No More Fake News. Right now, fascinating take on the, uh, the Great Pyramid. How it was built and why it was built. Stephen Myers is with us. What happened to this uh, this pump, uh, uh, Stephen? I, I mean, are there any remnants of it that maybe were misidentified? We didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't know what it was or what it was for, or has it completely vanished?
1: No, the pump uh, still exists, but it doesn't work right now. I believe, based on research, that initially the reason why it stopped working is the uh, there was a malfunction in the king's chamber and damaged that chamber. The ceiling stones in the king's chamber are broken, and some of the stones in the wall, the massive stones, are spread apart, and we believe that there was a malfunction there that caused those things. But also there's been the damage from the uh, ravages of man throughout the centuries, Uh Damaging everything, taking the casing stones off and damaging, uh, some of the mechanism that existed inside. So, uh, that's why it doesn't work now. But, uh, we feel that it's a, it's an alternative technology, this very unique water pump, that it was very efficient and that, uh, modern man can use this, uh, technology to help to help us in our modern but very troubled world, well, uh, you know, one application would be to make electricity
4: with it. Well, Lord knows they could use the water there now. But before we get into the applications, and I do want to, because that's a fascinating aspect. I want to get back to the the the, the pump. And I mean, is it is it uh, there for anyone to see what's left of it? Has it been uh, hauled away into some museum? I mean, where is I mean the pump, and what does it look like today?
1: Well, the pump. Is the passages and chambers inside the Great Pyramid?
4: But the that hydraulic, is, the well, hydraulic system uh, is that still there?
1: Yes, the passages are like pipes, and the uh, chambers in the Great Pyramid are like uh, enclosures. Oh, that I see. Water.
4: Okay, so there's nothing actual mechanical, no, no moving parts.
1: There was a few. There are stones that slide in slots in the Great Pyramid. There are, the slots still remain, and there also were a few um, stones on pivots. Both of those were like like valves, if you will, and there were some other apparatus that uh, helped the great or that allowed the Great Pyramid to be a water pump. So, uh, in ancient times, the applications certainly were many. Irrigation would be one probably the uh, powering of machinery, uh, like water power, if you will. That's how our our industrialization started. Also for experiments, you know, um, scientific experiments. I see the Giza Plateau more as as an industrial park than any type of graveyard, that type of thing. So those are some of the ancient applications. But some of the modern applications for us is to irrigate, farmland more cheaply, to supply clean water for uh, people that can't afford to pump water in a conventional way. Uh, also, in the, in the uh, North America, to help reduce our dependence on oil by uh, having an alternative method to generate electricity. So there's a lot of applications in uh, the modern world to use this unusual and efficient water pumping technology.
4: Could we build one of these things today?
1: Yes. Are, uh, I founded a nonprofit foundation here in Oregon that is dedicated to redeveloping this ancient technology for our modern uh, but troubled world, and we are seeking funding for that and uh, to, to, uh, to give glory to the ancients by uh, showing their genius And redeveloping this ancient technology, so that's that's what we're about. And our website is at www.thepump.org. I've hooked
4: up. I've hooked up to. to to Sorry, uh, Stephen. I was just going to say I've hooked up to your site on my site. If they go to my homepage and just click on your name, Stephen Myers, it'll take you right to the website.
1: That's even better. So, uh, and it talks about what our what our foundation's goals are, our mission statement uh... some of the uh... activities that we're doing that type of thing so that's that's what we want to do that is the uh... primary mission of our foundation is to redevelop this technology and uh... that's that's what we hope to do that's my life quest
4: Stephen, why uh, why wasn't this written about why don't we know that this was the the actual purpose of the pyramid why are there no written records of this
1: well uh, because it happened a long time ago. There's no written records about how the uh, uh, Great Pyramid was built. There's no barges that have survived. There's certainly no uh, testimony or books or scrolls uh, written by people that were eyewitnesses of its construction. It is a mystery. And uh, even though there are people that say who built it, how it was built, why it was built, and when it was built, all of those things are up for great Uh, debate, to be sure. And uh, so one way to end the debate is to engage in the scientific method, which Egyptology does not do. And that has spurred all of this debate about how stones were cut, how they were moved, and that type of thing. And the reason why Egyptology does not engage in the scientific method is that they literally can't... what, What their stories are about how the Great Pyramid was built literally cannot be done. So uh, there's, like I say, a lot of controversy. The Erie Canal was a a four-and-a-half-foot ditch filled with water, and the barges could handle a payload of 70 tons, the same weight as the heaviest stones in the Great Pyramid. So in the 1830s, just regular people could move 70 tons, payloads. In the modern world... Egyptologists literally cannot and have never moved a 70-ton payload one inch.
4: All you need is four feet for displacement. Four feet of water?
1: 70 tons, yes. That and, is a correct statement.
4: And how deep were these channels or canals uh, that were uh, attached to the, uh, the, the Giza?
1: For the Great Pyramid? Yes. Probably four, four feet deep. That's about, that's about the uh, height of a, of a casing stone. How interesting. Mm, indeed. So they put on a casing stone. That the pond was about four four and a half feet deep or so. They filled that up with stones, uh, level level by level and built the Great Pyramid. The book has a lot of illustrations about the uh each step of the process of moving and placing the stones. And uh so uh that, that helps a lot those illustrations the book is available certainly on amazon.com and also as an ebook a kindle ebook so if people are into that they can they can go that route
4: it, it's it's indeed a, a radical departure from the uh, the assertions of modern uh, egyptology um, now is it fair then to say that i mean you mentioned uh, the 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 pyramid being almost the center of An industrial park. Was the Egyptian empire then uh, uh, built upon this technology? Is this what allowed Egypt to expand and grow and and, uh, and, and amass uh, tremendous uh, wealth?
1: (laughs) It is beyond the scope of our research as to who built the Great Pyramid. We, We just are concerned about the technology, how it was done, more so than who. It's interesting that Egyptologists know a lot about Egypt, ancient Egypt, yet they uh, it's not been demonstrated that ancient Egyptians could have created the extreme precision or moved the stones with the technology they have. So possibly the Great Pyramid might have been built much earlier, maybe before the uh, last catastrophe, or who knows. But uh, I know that in uh, the Middle East... There are artifacts that have been electroplated, and there's a lot of other very interesting high technologies in the Middle East, like the Baghdad battery and a few other things, that point to some culture that had a high understanding of physics and were able to develop some very fascinating and sophisticated technologies.
4: How did the misconception, then, that these were burial tombs for the pharaohs get started?
1: Oh, that's easy. Egyptology is born from a culture of people robbing graves. The difference between a grave robber and an Egyptologist is that the uh, grave robber doesn't have a college education, and the Egyptologist does. That's the difference. (laughs)
4: And oh uh, boy I can see. <laughs> Yeah that's yeah. uh that's not going to sit well with the <laughs> over there is it Well
1: what what can you say there are books out about all the things that were stolen by these early explorers whatever you want to call them Egyptologists or whatever one book is called The Rape of the Nile about all these artifacts that were ripped off and everything else but uh if let's say let's say I'm hungry for uh Let's say a gold statue. Well I see the Great Pyramid and I say, Well, maybe there's a gold statue in there. Let's go rip it apart and see what we can find. So if you know, if if you're a hammer, the world is a nail and if if you make your living taking stuff out of tombs, then you you're gonna try and rob whatever's in the uh in the Great Pyramid. In fact, Egyptologists say that there that there was a mummy in there, but it was stolen in ancient times before Egyptologists could steal it. I mean, literally, that's what they say. Interesting. Almost. <laughs>
4: Interesting. Yeah, that's quite an admission, so, isn't it? Yes. <laughs>
1: you have a preconceived notion. It's very similar to uh, in the Middle Ages when the in Europe the Bible was you know very important. The Bible talks about big buildings in Egypt that were uh, granaries. So What does that make the uh, pyramids granaries if you went to college in the middle ages and you and they asked you what was the what were the pyramids you'd say granaries you'd get it you'd get it right i mean literally
4: right so, why so if if the, the it was a, a essentially a water pump then why did they need to build such an elaborate structure to to protect I guess the the water pump they wanted to keep it sort of, you know, to to keep the water in, prevent the water from seeping out, but why so, you know, if this 45 foot structure or 45 story uh, structure, why did they need to make it so elaborate?
1: Well, it's it's uh if they if they had plate steel, they would have only ne- needed to make the walls of the chambers inside the great pyramid only a quarter inch thick. Okay? They didn't have plate steel. They used stone um, and ultimately had to make it a lot physically a lot bigger, if you will. Just like we make very thick and big hydroelectric dams out of poured stone or concrete, if you will. So uh, that's, that's why they did not that Not that the original builders were primitive by any means. They made a structure that lasted at least 45 centuries so they use stone for longevity, and uh, and, that, and also they because they used water to move the stones, they needed to make an, in effect like four dams that backed up to each other, if you will, and impounded water in the middle as it was being constructed. So uh, so that that's why they do it. And again, the book has illustrations about all of that. And uh, so that's, that's why it was built
4: so huge. All right, Stephen, Staport, A few more questions remain. The lost technologies of the Great Pyramid, how the Great Pyramid was built, and perhaps more importantly, why. And now you know. But there's more to know, and we'll get to that. When The Conspiracy Show continues, my name is Richard Serrett.
3: Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740.
4: Stephen, I'm also fascinated by the, the water locks, these loaded barges traveling up these water locks carrying these... Huge, immense stones. And heretofore, of course, we thought that they're, they were being hauled up, these huge ramps by, by slaves, pure muscle. Uh, and now we're realizing that wasn't necessary. But how, how elaborate, I mean, how long were these, these, uh, these locks that were carved into the, the desert sand? I mean, how, how far did they have to go to get that water?
1: Well, the water locks were between the construction site and the Nile uh, River, and uh, which was it was much closer than it is now to the Great Pyramid. And the uh, size of the locks is under scholarly debate, but uh, they would have probably—I'm not sure. There's, like I say, there's quite a bit of scholarly debate. But water locks are very simple. It's just stone masonry ditch, in effect, with doors on pivots on both ends. And uh, it's not uh, rocket science, but it's actually 21st century technology. The Panama Canal is being uh, enlarged, if you will, with with larger water locks, uh, another series of water locks to uh, accommodate larger ships. And they're, they're doing that in the 21st century because it is the technology of choice to move our heaviest objects. Water locks in ancient times was the technology of choice to move their largest objects.
4: What about just the idea of, of bringing water? When I look at the, the situation in the Middle East... And the, the the politics and the tribalism and the and the uh, never-ending cycle of violence. To me, it mm-hmm. all boils down to it's not it's not religion ultimately. It's about water. It's about a scarce resource, and uh, you know, battling over control of the headwaters of the Jordan and, and so forth. Uh, how could this technology uh, be used in the Middle East? Uh, I mean, could they? W- would we be able to to deliver using this technology fresh water to uh you know the palestinians and the and the uh and the syrians and 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 so forth
1: you are correct about water water will become a more uh, important resource than oil ultimately in africa there's a lot of uh i believe wars over that uh, resource and everything but it's interesting in africa what is the largest structure ever built by mankind?
4: The dam in Egypt. No? no. No, the
1: High Aswan Dam. The High Aswan Dam is much bigger than the Great Pyramid.
4: No, that's what I said. And, the dam in Egypt. I couldn't remember oh, the name. Okay. Yes. Yeah,
1: excuse me. Well, anyway. Aswan yes, Dam. Yes. What that dam does is it is a water pump. It creates electricity, and that electricity is used for a massive irrigation project. So, in modern times, mankind builds massive water pumps to uh, as prosperity machines, if you will. In ancient times, mankind created this great pyramid, which was a water pump, to uh, create prosperity for their civilization. And I think what, what we want to do is redevelop the technology but, but makes much smaller uh, water pumps. You wouldn't need a pyramid, just the passages and chambers made out of polypropylene containers and PVC pipe. And we're developing the best we can with the resources we have, this ancient technology, and people can use them to uh, generate electricity and microgrids. They can uh, irrigate marginal farmland cheaply, and do a whole host of things with this technology. So that's, that's what we want to do. And, uh, you know, we certainly uh, are interested in people that want to uh, partner with us and, and help us reach that goal.
4: Is the idea that this pump could draw water for, from long distances? Well, what,
1: what it did was, uh, that's, that's either a quite technical question, but uh, water from Lake Maurice was made available to the Giza Plateau, and that source water right at the Great Pyramid uh, was uh, moved through the passages and chambers and exited the King's Chamber vents. And then that pumped water was used probably for a whole host of purposes, including uh, creating uh, compressed air and a whole a whole bunch of other things so it was quite sophisticated but that's that's how it worked the water came in the descending passage and out the king's chamber vents
4: but i guess what i'm asking is uh, in terms of uh, applications today uh if you had these uh, these pumps uh would you be able to deliver to a particular area that's experiencing a, a drought and so forth water from a long distance
1: yes uh, they they normally I, I apologize I didn't understand your question but yes they're usually at, at the source water and then they pump water up some some pumps are are uh, draw water up quite a bit but this pump actually is at the source water and then pumps water up uh, quite a way so yes they w- they would be used in any number of uh, applications and uh, to help. Keep us off our addiction of oil, it would be an alternative technology, just like wind solar, and then this very ancient technology to reduce uh, the the geopolitical unstabling effects of oil and uh, we've got to come up with something that's that's for sure
4: uh, also i'm 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 guessing here just to trying to think, uh, other you know, other applications. I'm, I'm sure there's a, these have been thought of. But I think one of the challenges is when you're trying to deliver water, uh, let's say you have a desalination plant um, located on the coast, how do you get that fresh, that, that seawater that has been trans, uh, transformed into fresh drinking water inland? But if you could deliver the seawater inland and have the desalination plant on the other end, then you could have a virtually inexhaustible supply of fresh water.
1: You are very astute and understand the potential of this uh, technology. Pumping water is actually very expensive. Uh, Ask any farmer, and uh, it costs a lot of money to pump water. So if there's a way to reduce the cost of moving water, it will really uh, make a big impact environmentally and also economically on uh, in the world it I think that there's a tremendous potential for this
4: technology and perhaps most importantly geopolitically the impact I mean as I I, I am quite serious I mean I think once you can provide uh, fresh water uh, to the Middle East to all regions you've gone a long way in solving what has been seen heretofore as an intractable situation. It's, it boils down to lack of fresh water.
1: I agree with you. Uh, that's a big factor and it would it would turn the desert into a garden and that's what we think happened when the Great Pyramid was operational. It would turn uh, farmland, in, you know, from from barren land it would be farmland. It would transform toil into prosperity, and uh, poverty into wealth. So that's, that's what we think it would be a, uh, that this, this technology will make the world a safer place, a cleaner place, and a, uh, a place that people can raise their children much safer than, than now. So that, that's what we think the potential is for our, our modern world. And, uh, you know, that's what we're all about at our foundation.
4: Stephen, thank you so much for this. Again, the book is Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid. And uh, the website is thepump.org, www.thepump.org. Appreciate your time tonight.
1: Well, thank you, Richard. It means a lot to me to be on your show.
4: Not at all. We'll do it again. As we approach the anniversary of John Lennon's death... We'll uh, play a little Strange Planet episode for you in uh, his honor when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast
0: of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
1: We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day
3: after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creed.
2: Turn them off right now. Turn them off and
3: leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of this sentence. I'm speaking to you now.
4: Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers and brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders, by our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live
3: from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show, with Richard Senn, from Zoomer
4: Radio, AM 740. And we are trying to raise John Rappaport, who's down in Carlsbad, California. So until we're able to connect with him, who knows, he could be stuck in traffic. I think we were going to reach him at his office, so he's probably en route there right now. I've sent him a little email, uh, email reminder. So Dan Ellison is uh, trying to raise John Rappaport on the phone. And as soon as he gets here, we'll discuss the decline of, of public education and the uh, the increasingly important role of homeschooling. And uh, John will also tell us about his special uh, program that he's offering online, a course to parents who choose to homeschool. And uh, this is a course he's uh, he's put together on critical thinking and logic and logic is is one of those things that John cites that has been pretty much eradicated from the pu- the uh, the public school uh, system so John Rappaport no more fake news will be here we hope shortly uh, in the meantime why don't we just open up the lines this is something we ha- we don't have uh, a lot of opportunity to do and uh, and that is to hear from you uh, and so we have that We have that now, at least until uh, John joins us. So why don't you give us a call here at the Conspiracy Show, 416-360-0740 in the Toronto area, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, Maine to Minnesota, Thunder Bay, Ontario, all the way down to the, uh, the Carolinas, 866 740 4740 866740 4740 and you can ask me just about anything in fact we call this segment ask richard anything one proviso and has to have something to do with what we talk on the, about on this program and that of course has to do with the uh, uh, conspiracy theories and or conspiracy facts if you will paranormal encounters supernatural encounters the just plain weird, unexplained mysteries, alternative, well, alternative just about anything, alternative medicine, alternative archaeology, alternative health, 416-360-0740, 866-740-4740. I had a, an occasion to uh, to meet with John Rapoport uh, several weeks ago. I was out on the West Coast shooting episodes for the TV show, also called The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And I met John at his office in uh, Carlsbad, California, as I mentioned. And we had a great conversation about One World Government. That will be one of the featured episodes in the uh, the first season of the TV show. We'll talk about One World Government. And I mentioned earlier as well, I referred to John Rappaport as legendary. You know, in the I guess the, if there's a pantheon of... Uh, researchers in the the field of conspiracy theories and so forth. I would certainly put John Rappaport up there in that company with uh, people like G. Edward Griffin, of course the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, who I also met on that same trip uh, about, about a day before, I think, or a day after I met with John Rappaport, had a great conversation with G. Edward Griffin about the Federal Reserve System, which will be another episode, and We had a great conversation about his new film on chemtrails, which will be yet another episode. So you've got John Rappaport. You've got G. Edward Griffin. You would also have to add to that list, I think, Jim Mars. Uh, Because Jim, I think, he's a perennial New York Times bestseller. And, of course, his book Crossfire was the sort of the blueprint for the Oliver Stone movie, JFK. And uh, Jim's other uh, uh, book, Rule by Secrecy, has sort of become one of those must-have books for uh, fellow truth-seekers. It's a wonderful primer. If you're looking for a great book to sort of jump into this whole mysterious world, uh, that would be one, I would say. Rule by Secrecy by Jim Mars. Uh, So Jim, John Rappaport, G. Edward Griffin. I would add Dr. Len Horowitz. Uh, to that uh, that pantheon as well. Uh so it, it, there you have it anyway. John uh, Rappaport, uh, not with us at the moment, but we're hoping he will be soon. Uh while we're waiting and we're, we we are planning to talk about the the decline of public education. I wanted to share with you a um, a speech that was delivered back in the I guess it was actually it was originally Uh, Delivered in October of 63, then it was published in the Saturday Review a couple of months later by author, the great American author, James Baldwin. And it was entitled A Talk to Teachers. And this really says it all, I believe. The purpose of education, finally, is to create in a person the ability to look at the world for himself, to make his own decisions. To say to himself, this is black and this is white. To decide for himself whether there is a God in heaven or not. To ask questions of the universe and then learn to live with those questions. That's the way he achieves his own identity. But no society is really anxious to have that kind of person around. What societies really, ideally want is a citizenry which will simply obey the rules of society. If a society succeeds in this, that society is about to perish. The obligation of anyone who thinks of himself as responsible is to examine society and to try to change it and to fight it at no matter what risk. This is the only hope society has. This is the only way societies change. That... I think, is perhaps the most apt description of the purpose of education that I've ever read or heard. Education is not about playing the game, getting your piece of paper, and then parlaying that into a career or a job. But that's what we think of education as today. It's about getting a job. That's not the purpose of education. Let's go to uh, Mississauga and uh, say hello to Mark. Mark, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. What's on your mind? Mark, are you there? Hey, Mark, go ahead.
2: Yes, uh, just a quick note there, uh, Richard, something I caught on uh, on uh, Google yesterday. If you ever have a chance, I never really uh, looked into it pretty deep, but have you ever heard anything called Japan Area 731?
4: japan's area seven thirty one I have not
2: uh, I just googled it uh, yesterday and I got hold of it somehow and uh, basically what it is is if you have a chance or your listeners have a chance and I'm not sure how, how true this is, but there's a YouTube about it about the uh, about uh, emperor Horihito, Japan and everybody involved on um, i guess after the second world war how they're u- how they're using people i guess. For uh like experimentation, and it's pretty gruesome
4: oh oh wait a minute this was um are you talking to about to, there was a, a sort of a biological or chemical warfare research uh, area that the
2: absolutely okay. i never not really heard about it too much, but you're correct they, they called it as a, a water for a purification plant as they were trying to fool the people around and what is that exactly you're right biological experiments, and they had POWs, and people from China, and Americans, and whatever else, and it was really quite gruesome.
4: Yeah, they would round up, um, well, you have to call them victims, um, hundreds and hundreds of victims every year, Mm -hmm. and they were mainly Chinese and Korean.
2: Yes, and as well on this YouTube, which is still present out there, about three, four, or five minutes long, I think about five or seven minutes, and uh, it shows pretty graphic, I'm not sure how they even got the photos or whatever else, but, and bottom line is, everybody knew about it, even to General MacArthur, about what was going on. And uh, as long as the secrets were passed to the Americans, Horihito and everybody else got let go and pardoned. But uh, it was pretty pretty uh, you know, awful and gruesome to see. And bottom line is, the Green Cross, which is, I think, like uh, the medical side of, of Japan, which is still out there running shows. A lot of these top people that were involved got high, high-end seats and were working and knew all about this. And Nothing ever got done about it, and it was—you know—when I saw it on YouTube and whatever else, really couldn't believe it. Uh, what, was, what really was going on, and how they're using people for experimentation on this. It,
4: well, it's certainly a, a tremendous uh, a parallels to what was going on, of course, in in Nazi Germany. And uh, so, are, are you saying that a, a lot of the, the the scientists that were working at Japan's Area 731 ended up? Uh, being what, uh, absolutely exfiltrated, assimilated into to uh, Western uh, positions well, of power.
2: Uh, yeah, it, they moved right up, and something called in Japan the Green Cross. Even today, all the older fellows that worked there uh, got high-end positions, and of course they kept quiet about it. And of course, you don't go against the against the uh, uh, you know the people that set you up there, and it's all like uh, inner circle, but. These people uh, they got power and they run the Green Cross of Japan.
4: Interesting. Well, uh, that's certainly a chapter that deserves some more of our attention, and um, I really appreciate you bringing that to our attention.
2: Yeah, just one last thing. If, yes, uh, if like I, I caught that by by somebody that passed it on to me on the weekend and I just googled it. But uh, it, I think if you just Google Area Seven Thirty One, there is a YouTube. I'm not sure how long it will be still on or how when, how long it's been on for, but. It is about several minutes, and all the details, all the names, and everything else, and arc, arc, like footage from the archives, it's all there. I'm Excellent. Not sure how long be, but, you know, just passing it on.
4: All right, Mark, thank you for that. Well, it's also interesting to note, of course, what happened after the um, the Nazis were defeated, ostensibly, anyway, on the battlefield. Although there's a great argument to be made that they maybe they lost the battle, but they actually won the war, because a lot of those same types of scientists and intelligence um, officers and so forth, exfiltrated through Operation Paperclip, ended up in the United States. So essentially the Nazis were running the US intelligence groups. The Pentagon were very highly placed in the US chemical and bio warfare uh, programs and also in the various cancer institutes. So you start to connect the dots Nazis in the U.S. running the Cancer Institute, uh, bio-warfare divisions. Very scary scenario. Then you conclude, yes, well, the Nazis did win the war, didn't they? They simply moved their base of operation. All right, John Rappaport, no more fake news as promised, coming up next on The Conspiracy Show.
3: Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Once
4: upon a time... John Rappaport says there were or there was meaningful instruction in our public schools in things like critical thinking and logic. There were textbooks which listed 15 or 20 traditional logical fallacies, and students were taught how to spot those fallacies in any argument or presentation. In most schools, however, the subject of logic has been lost. Therefore the ability to analyze written and spoken material has faded into obscurity. As public education descended into a stagnant pool of political correctness, fraudulent graduation rates and new values logic was diluted and discarded. It was considered an enemy of preferred groupthink. In addition to this disintegration, many bright students, more than ever, were being drawn into law schools where they learned that any side of an issue could be compellingly argued by the practice of twisting logic into knots. John Rapoport has now developed materials that are effective for teaching logic and analysis, and these courses do not challenge faith or personal conviction. They're designed to enable a bright student to take apart a written text, an argument, a visual presentation, and discover whether it's valid whether it truly makes sense, and whether it has holes in it. We've never needed a course like this more than we do right now. John Rappaport has worked as a freelance investigative reporter for over 20 years. He's written articles on politics, health, media, culture, and art for LA Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, Village Voice, Nexus, CBS, Health Watch, and other newspapers and magazines in the US and Europe. Although, as he says, more recently, Particularly the last 10 years, he's operated largely away from the mainstream because, as he puts it, his research is not friendly to the conventional media. The founder of nomorefakenews.com, John Rappaport. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend?
5: Okay, great to be here with you.
4: I read a, uh, a quote from uh, James Baldwin, the great American author. Uh, it was entitled A Talk to Teachers. It was published in the Saturday Review back in December of '63. He talks about the public or the purpose of education to create in a person the ability to look at the world for himself to make his own decisions to say to himself this is black or this is white to decide for himself whether there's a god in heaven or not and he says that of course this is not what society wants ideally what they want is a citizenry a citizenry which simply obey the rules of society but this type of society, if it succeeds, is about to perish. That's where we are We are right now. Uh, wouldn't you agree, John Rappaport?
5: Yes, absolutely. We are at that point right now. And it's the culmination of many, many decades of uh, education that has descended further and further away from that standard of being able to be independent-minded and to look at things directly and to look at them for yourself that's what's happened and what you get as a substitute for that is I say in that quote is group think where everyone looks to everyone else for an answer what's the consensus what are we supposed to believe uh, what are what are the cues that we're supposed to take from what we see around us so that we know how to fit in. And so everything falls apart, you see, because eventually you, you can't live in a society where consensus is the, the norm, where everybody tries to agree with everybody else after a certain point is reached that all begins to collapse because everybody realizes that it's a total sham. But they're not equipped to do anything else. You see, it's like letting, uh, you know, laboratory animals out of the lab after you've kept them in the cage for several generations, and now you say you're free, and you let them out on the street. Well, do they really know how to survive? Do they understand the environment? Do they know what's going on? They have no idea what's happening. And so this is where we have come to. And um, that's the tragedy of the educational system, not only in the United States, but in many countries around the world. Come to that point where you've got political leaders saying, we need to teach kids more math and science. We need to teach them how to do this better and that better. But the, the fundamental thing that underlies it all, which is the ability to reason for yourself and see what the actual substance of argument is, <clears> of <throat> points of view, of conclusion, of reasoning, looking at the world around you and being able to size it up for what it actually is, not what it's supposed to be, that's missing.
4: Well, away. what also is missing, uh, John, is a lack, a total lack of moral outrage with what's going on in the world. And if we are, if we've constructed a public education system, which is simply churning out pliable serfs for the new global economy, that's where it all begins to fail because an individual, a responsible individual is supposed to be able to examine his his society and try to change it and even fight it and that's gone we don't have I mean we don't have patriots anymore we don't have people that are capable of of standing up and saying this is wrong I'm angry we've got to do something about it if a lot of the stuff that was happening now happened 150 years ago there would be rioting in the streets
5: that's right absolutely what's taken over How can I put this? You've got partners in this deteriorating, degraded educational system. And although this may sound a little strange to listeners, the major partner in the educational system is becoming psychiatry. And psychiatry basically functions on a social level to dampen and eradicate that moral outrage that you're talking about to diagnose it in other words as some kind of a mental disorder that needs to be treated right and so when you've got these twin partners operating together you see and this i mean this happens in schools all the time of course we have a category of a mental disorder called oppositional defiant disorder <laughs> i mean you know this is supposed to be a legitimate a uh, mental disease that could be diagnosed in the same way roughly as a physical organic disease could be diagnosed but of course that's preposterous because all of these so-called mental disorders are concocted by committees mainly on a business level for the purpose of enriching the pharmaceutical industry because the more diagnoses that you can make the more drugs you can sell And so this is what happens to the moral outrage. You've got some kid in class who begins to see through the whole sham and begins to express some kind of moral outrage, maybe directly or indirectly, doesn't quite know what he's doing. And all of a sudden he's got oppositional defiant disorder or he's got ADHD and he needs to be put on Ritalin or he needs to be put on some other kind of psychotropic drug. And then he gets depressed, which happens with speed drugs like Ritalin. And then the doctor comes along, the psychiatrist, makes a new diagnosis. All of a sudden, clinical depression has nothing to do with the drug, of course, that we've been giving him, blah, 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 blah. This is a new condition, and now we have to give him Prozac or Zoloft or Paxil. And now he's on the merry-go-round for the rest of his life. And this has been happening for many, many years now, and people have been talking about it and writing about it, and I've been one of those people writing about it. But what I've been saying is that before your eyes, you are seeing the deterioration of the society. You are seeing things come to the point where you will no longer have individuals who will speak out against the status quo because they're all being medicated into oblivion.
4: It's a frightening proposition. And that's why there are no more Patrick Henrys, I guess. They've all been... uh, They've all been given the the, the pill. Yeah, they've been
5: given the pill. They've been educated into ignorance. And then when they rebel, they're given the pill.
4: All right, back with more. My conversation with John Rappaport of No More Fake News. The decline of public education. The deliberate dumbing down of North America and uh, the loss of logic. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive
0: podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
4: John Rappaport is with us. When did this all change, John? Can you put your finger on a a date? Was it uh, anything to do with the... uh, the Carnegie or the, the Ford Foundation uh, uh, trying to merge the U.S. public system with the Soviet system? Uh, when did they start uh, taking these logical, logic and, and critical thinking uh, courses out of the public education system?
5: As best I can nail it down, it was sometime around 1930, 1920, 1930, somewhere in there. And yes, these foundations had a great deal to do with it. But it was also the fact that there had been a depression that was engineered, the crash of 1929, the depression of the 30s. And in times like those, you know, everything goes out the window. And it's very hard to hold the line, especially in an educational system. So there were a number of vectors that were there. But literacy began to decline, and certainly the teaching of logic Quickly fell out of the system, and the kind of logic that I'm talking about is not what's being taught in schools now, where kids get these sanitized passages of text that are so politically correct that they don't resemble any real-world information that you know anybody's ever seen outside of a schoolroom. Um, this kind of logic was: let's create a strong, independent mind. Let's show people that reasoning can actually be done and that you can listen to an argument a point of view a presentation and you can pick it apart and find out where the contradictions are where the empty generalities are where the logical uh... inferences are shoddy and have holes in them i like to point out that in the famous lincoln douglas debates of the nineteenth century in america People were expected to be able to listen to speakers go on at length for an hour, two hours, arguing rationally various subjects, not to scream at each other, not sound bites, not this, not that, but to make an impassioned argument for a particular point of view. It was expected that an audience would sit, listen, and understand and be able to analyze what actually had been said. So, although we complain about what's happened to the political system, especially during campaigning, what's really going on is that people have been uneducated to the point where they wouldn't really be able to understand much more than what goes on. The whole thing has fallen apart. I mean, we had a president who basically campaigned on two words hope and change. I mean, how illogical can you get does anybody stand up and say hope for what change into what precisely exactly what are you talking about what are you going to do let's strip the fat away and let's see what it is that you're actually saying no people are unable to do that And so the whole thing became almost like a tent revival meeting where people were swept away with the notion that everything was going to change because they had been stupefied by the educational system and could no longer think. And when you have people who can't think anymore, they react as a mass, as a collective, as a group. And then you no longer have a republic, you no longer have the Constitution, you no longer have uh, the foundations of a nation. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison both were not only students of logic, but they were devoted students of logic. Jefferson went to school, to college, so that he could study with a particular professor of logic. We have 122 pages of notes by James Madison about his study of logic. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were written as logical, flowing, reasoned documents. And nobody can understand what they possibly mean unless they understand logic. No one can see the flow of the argument or what the basis of freedom really is all about unless they know logic, and it's been erased out of the public schools. Deliberately? Deliberately, absolutely deliberately, sure. Because, as Baldwin said in the quote that you read, what happens if you begin to reinstate it? Now you're creating independent individuals. Well, that's not something that anybody wants in this country. (laughs) You know, who's connected with politics or institutions or federal agencies. Nobody wants that. Because now you're actually going to make a populace of people who can think for themselves and who will not be taken in by nonsense and absurdity.
4: Tell me about your course, uh, uh, John, uh, on on logic and critical thinking that, if I understand correctly, it's designed for parents who are homeschooling.
5: Yes, that's right, and it's also designed for parents or adults who want to do this as independent study, and I've had a number of people who ordered the course for that basis. It's an 18-lesson course, and It leads up to, through many, many examples, some long passages that I've written to make them resemble news stories, political speech, scientific uh, all and nonsense that we read in newspapers every day, Internet, uh, semi-quasi-journalism, and the idea is that the student and the teacher attack these passages and in a cd that i have that goes along with the course i analyze these big six core passages uh, down to you know the nats rear end to show all of the flaws that logical flaws that i have embedded in these passages intentionally so that We're now talking about students who become tigers. They learn how to take apart written material, dissect it, do surgery on it, analyze it, find all the logical flaws in it so that they are no longer confused about information. They feel confident in being able to attack information and realistic kinds of information that people encounter all the time that was the purpose of the course and that's what I've never seen in any other logic course including logic when I studied it in college extensively we never really got down to well here's the kind of material that you find in the newspaper or in a textbook or in a you know a long political speech or in a government policy or in a a Karl Marx or a John Dewey or a you know somebody who's Sigmund Freud uh, who's really influenced society let's look at these people let's look at what they wrote let's take five pages out of what they wrote and let's really analyze it and see if it's logical or not and if it's not exactly why it isn't not just oh well doesn't seem to make sense to me you know no <clears throat> so that's the purpose of this And it's studied in 18 lessons, and, you know, there's a final exam, and I wanted to put a wedge in the door before it closes completely on the educational system and allow people who are homeschoolers to educate their kids to be strong and independent.
4: Uh, When we think of um, arguments, they all have the same structure, A, therefore B. They begin with one or more premise. You've got A, which is a fact or assumption upon which the argument is based, and then they apply a logical principle, therefore, to arrive at conclusion B. So, let's um, walk through some of the, the more common logical fallacies.
5: Okay. <clears throat> the first one is empty generalization. That means that a person is making a statement that sounds reasonable or interesting or attractive, but when you really look at it, it says nothing. And that would be, say, a statement like, people's needs must be met. And this might be the opening salvo in an argument for a grand overarching welfare state that's going to Run things as socialism, as government controls everything for the people, you see. So people's needs must be met. But of course, then you, and this is very elementary, but let's start there. You know, so which people? How many people? Everybody? Which needs? All needs. <clears throat> who decides what the needs are? The people themselves who have the needs. Does this mean that every group, including groups that want to pretend to be victims, have a right to make up a fantasy about something that they feel insulted by or disrespected by and therefore they can get government money? That they can be supported by tax money? Is that what we're talking about? What are needs? Let's hear it. You see. Now if politicians were forced to argue after uh, an attack like that, you would really begin to see where they stood philosophically. And I'm talking about, you know, any president of the United States, certainly, and I assume any leader of the Canadian government, you know, for the last 30 or 40 years, if you got them up there. You say, sir, Mr. President, you say that people's needs must be met. So let's hear exactly what needs you propose to meet. Now we have something to chew on. Now we can begin to talk. But this is going to take a while, you see. This is not just three minutes or five minutes. It's ridiculous. This is a real conversation. So the biggest logical fallacy is the empty generalization, which when you begin to pin it down, you actually find out what the reality is.
4: And that's, all, that's the way politicians uh, speak uh, these days, is just oh, yeah, it's just empty generalizations. It's slogans. It's slogans, which yeah. mean nothing.
5: Slogans, empty generalities. Uh, another one would be um, we must have a dictatorship of the proletariat. Well, Karl Marx uttered those words. How many students today in schools, let's say high schools, would even know what he's talking about would even know what the word proletariat means and yet this was a philosophy upon which a major portion of the world was put under the gun as communist states. who is the proletariat what are you talking about are they all the workers just some of the workers what do you mean the dictatorship of the proletariat do you actually mean that say fifty million people are going to uh, move to Moscow, uh, and suddenly they're all president? What the hell are you talking about? You know, And this is where the Marxist argument falls apart completely when you begin to question that generality because what you discover is that what he's talking about is that a few strong men will take over and they will do what they think is necessary for the proletariat, meaning all the people. So it's just a It's a very uh, clever argument on behalf of yet another tyranny. In the United States, this whole business of people's needs must be met is the slogan that's been used as an anti-generalization for the last 30, 40 years to indicate that in a much softer, kinder, gentler way, we are going to put every function of human life under the aegis of the federal government. So if you just knew this and you began to challenge politicians on these generalities to explain exactly what they're talking about, to engage in a debate, a real debate, you know, uh, I've made a suggestion to a friend of mine who I think he's going to start a television network out of New York, but this goes for everybody. There should be a debate channel on television.
4: I, that's radio. great a great idea. I love it.
5: A real debate channel you see where you would have you know a couple of very strong arguers on an issue, for example, in the United States, you might have a debate. Is the Constitution of the United States a document that should be honored for its original words and original intent? or is it an evolving document that is supposed to change by decisions of the u.s. supreme court as the world changes this is an issue that nobody even talks about but it's changed the direction of the country completely Mm -hmm. okay well let's have three debates let's have speaker a talk for an hour speaker b talk for an hour then let's have a few questions. Then the next night they come back with rebuttals. Now, the thing that I've noticed about this, as crazy as it sounds, oh, nobody would be even interested in that. Man, there is a fantastic hunger in the country in the world for exactly this kind of thing. People want to know more, and they want and in order to know more, they've got to have the tools of logic to be able to analyze what actual people say when they speak at length, seriously, about a serious issue. Another debate. In what sense is the United States becoming socialism? You hear this thrown around all the time. There's a bunch of socialists. Oh, they're crazy. We're not socialists. And nobody ever says anything. Okay, let's have six hours of debate on this issue. And let's really get into it.
4: I'd like another debate on what is the true nature of the Federal Reserve. Is it public? Is it private? Is it creating money out of thin air?
2: Yeah.
5: I mean, you know, you get Ed Griffin on there arguing against somebody else in a real debate or what you were talking about before. Um, What is the legacy of Operation Paperclip when Nazis were brought into the United States, into the rocket program, into the CIA? into mind control research what is the legacy of this what actually happened and is there something that we need to be concerned about right now Whoa! you want to open up a can of worms there for about 10 or 15 hours of debate serious conversation with people who've actually researched the issue
4: I don't know. What is is America ready for, for it, John? I'm not sure. John Rappaport, no more fake com. back with more of the conspiracy show. My name is Richard Serrett.
3: When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740.
4: John Rappaport, nomorefakenews.com, and uh, he has constructed an 18-part A course in logic and critical thinking that's available uh, to uh, subscribers for uh, parents who want to homeschool or for adults who simply uh, need, I guess, an antidote to their public education system or Mm -hmm. their public education upbringing. I could certainly use that. Um, Some of the other logical fallacies, the more popular logical fallacies, and this one that I find was... um, employed to tremendous effect uh, in the early stages, I guess, following the 9-11 attacks. And there were some genuine people out there, researchers, who were, who were trying to get to the truth, to follow the truth, to ask questions, uh, no matter where it led. And it was the uh, the use of the, uh, the old straw man argument, where somebody would... Uh, Take a, 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 a an argument. They make an argument against a position, and they would create it specifically so that they could. It would be easy to argue against. So when it came to 9/11, uh, they would go to some some crackpot website, and they would take that uh, theory that I don't know the you know UFOs brought down the twin towers, and then uh-huh. they would hold that up there as the be all and the end all of the sort of the 9/11 truth movement. And of course, they could shoot holes in that. The straw man argument. We see that being used over and over and over again particularly uh in in television uh uh, television debate type forums
5: yes you do they bring on somebody who is not prepared really to go up against uh you know a smooth talking anchor on network news he presents a pretty lame argument and then you know he's shot full of holes he's the straw man and that is supposed to defeat the entire position as if he is as you say the sole representative of that position i've been up against this a few times when i've been interviewed and my strategy which you know has kind of resulted in my not being invited back <laughs> you know is to never give an inch they're not really prepared for that because they think that they're going to make a straw man out of you and the fallacy that goes along hand in glove with that is called the ad hominem argument where you attack the person and not the argument and you see this a great deal in relation to 911 and here's how the argument is made anybody who would say that the tragedy that happened on 911 could somehow implicate certain people inside the American government have to be unpatriotic, treasonous SOBs who should be put behind bars and prosecuted for, you know, defaming and degrading the population of New York City and all the people who died that day. You hear that argument a lot from the political right in America. I read it all the time when I go to right-wing conservative sites who happened to write on other subjects that i agree with certain of their articles but you get to this stuff and it's always the same nobody has anything to say about nine eleven it's all wrapped up we know exactly what happened and anybody who claims that they're trying to find out the truth is a traitor to the united states of america Boom. end of argument this is done as well all the time i've seen this happen over and over again. For example, here's another way it works. Some conservatives take the position that all corporations and industry in the United States are good. Free enterprise, free market, capitalism, blah, 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 blah. So if somebody comes out and says, well, guess what? We can identify certain corporations that have actually polluted gigantic areas and destroyed all kinds of life and endangered people and made them ill and so, and so on suddenly the argument is you must be some kind of a tree-hugging socialist who wants to turn the entire uh, industrial society upside down bankrupt corporations and turn it all over to government no as a matter of fact i'm all for free enterprise i just believe in punishing crimes period But this is how these fallacies are used and twisted around to appeal to people's emotions rather than uh... their minds and this is what has been missing from the educational system in a real educational system these issues would be confronted You see in high school you would have real conversations with students about this okay well you know what do you think about this is this punishing a corporation illegitimately is this trying to destroy somebody's business who they spent their whole life building it up or has a crime been committed here. We'll try to float that in public school and you'd be kicked out in a second. Oh, so politically incorrect and we can't have this kind of argument. No, we what we need is something about Jack and Jill going up the hill. Let the students read this and then they can comment on Critically on, on what's in a passage like that. So, what you're seeing here is people's minds being intentionally weakened under the banner of political correctness. We've got a bunch of cowards operating school systems in America and in the classroom and in the offices of the boards of education and, you know, getting their funding from the states and from the federal government. We've got Thousands and thousands of cowards, absolute lily-livered cowards, to use an old phrase, who are afraid to put up a real issue to be discussed in logical terms in reality in the classroom, which would make students stronger, more independent, more free, more logical, more rational, more tough,
4: more dangerous. More dangerous. come back. We'll find out how we can subscribe to John Rappaport's Logical and Critical Thinking course. Stay with us.
2: I do not need to sit here and be ridiculed. I'm going to go be homeschooled from now on. I'm going to be homeschooled and leave all the pain and suffering of public school behind me. Screw you guys. I'm going to be homeschooled.
3: Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio,
4: AM 740. John Rappaport, how do uh, people subscribe to your uh, logic and uh, critical thinking course?
5: Well, in order to order, let me just give you an email because that's the simplest way. Just get in touch with me directly. I've got all kinds of uh, material I can send them describe the course. It's qjrconsulting at gmail.com. If they just email me, inquire about the course, I'll send them uh, some material about what it is, and they can decide if they want it or not. That's the direct way.
4: What's the state of homeschooling in in the U.S.? In certain jurisdictions, it seems to be embraced. In others, uh... My gosh. Well, I know in Germany, for example, uh, they'll, they'll send you to jail. They'll put your children in... Um, there have been documented cases. Children have been taken from their parents' homes, placed in mental institutions. Wow.
5: Well, it's expanding and exploding all over the United States. And some of the major battles have already been fought and won, because in the early days, there was a lot of trouble in the U.S. with homeschooling. But now it's gotten to the point where it's been much more widely accepted in fact in many places the county will give you materials free of charge uh... books textbooks and so on if you're homeschooling your kids the problem is that then you're teaching the same drivel that the kids are learning in public school so it's a much patchworked system you can't define it exactly. I can tell you that it's exploding all over the place for various reasons. Uh,
4: but homeschooling don't. homeschooling has to be more than just teaching the public curriculum in under your roof. I mean, it has to have yeah. the, the parental uh, input. The, the, the parents have to make the choices. Uh, are they going to teach their kids evolution? Are they going to teach them creationism? Are they going to teach them intelligent design? Are they going to teach them both? I mean, those decisions must be with the parents, otherwise you don't have homeschooling.
5: Yes, that's right. But you see, as it turns out, this is not always the case. Because sometimes parents keep their kids out of public schools for other reasons that have nothing to do with the curriculum. And this is something I learned from, you know, talking to people uh, who were interested in my course. So it's very hard to generalize. Sometimes, you know, parents hold their kids out because of religious reasons, for example. Uh, But it's better than what's happening in the public schools. Sometimes it's brilliant. I mean brilliant. I've talked to a few parents that are doing just an incredible job with their kids. Kids are reading at a very young age, and they're thinking for themselves. They're very sharp and so on. So at least right now, the battle is being won in the United States. You can homeschool your kid. It's gotten so far into the mainstream now that it would take something really drastic to turn the clock back, and I don't think politicians want to mess with it. But what happens under that roof, that's what I'm interested in. What is being taught? Is the child really growing up with a powerful, strong, independent, rational mind? In other words, is he approaching the ideal that was described in the founding documents of the country, which were the free individual. I mean, that's what the ball game was all about starting in 1776. That's why Constitution was written. So is your homeschool turning out a kid like that? Is that what we're getting? Or are we just getting a kid who learns public school knowledge at home? And that's where I'm kind of moving in to see if I can make some change happen there.
4: All right, John. Well, uh, good luck with this. And again, the, the email address if people want to subscribe? Yes,
5: Consulting at gmail.com.
4: Q, as in question, question everything. Consulting at gmail.com. Hey, John, uh, always a pleasure. It was uh, great uh, meeting you in the flesh a couple of weeks ago down in Carlsbad. And, Thank And uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope.
5: Thanks, Richard. Me too. I loved it. Thank you very much.
4: All right. John Rappaport, no more fake news.com. One of the legends in the Pantheon, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Next week, Paula Harris, UFO journalist, with two first hand eyewitness accounts of a UFO crash. I hope you'll be with me for that. Sunday night at 11. It's a date. Thanks to Dan Ellison for his adroitness behind the uh, soundboard. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.